Um, well, at the beginning of the service, um, half of you were in here, uh, we read a passage, Isaiah 55, with a shot. Uh, Isaiah 55, uh, verse 2, it says, Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? This is God talking to his people. And your labor for that which does not satisfy. Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live and I will make with you an everlasting covenant my steadfast, sure love for David. So, so in the Old Testament, we have God here looking at his people, and he sees his people as exhausted and hungry people. They're exhausted because they're working like crazy, and they're hungry because what they're working for never satisfies. Uh, they, they work hard for stuff, for food, for achievements, for fame, for power, for security, and they found that that thing that they were working for just wasn't bread. It just wasn't the food that they were after. It still left them hungry day after day. And so he calls them to to better food. He says to them, come to me. And rather than just eat so your body can live, he says, here so that your soul can live. And this is a good word to, to us. Because a lot of us are in this same position, where we exhaust ourselves in our pursuits there, there's some good things that we're running after in life and also some bad things that we run after in life, but they're not the food that our souls are after. And deep within us, it seems like there's still this angst, there's still this murmur, there's this drive for more, and there's this feeling that life is just disappointing, we're missing out on something, it's all passing us by, and whatever it is that gives you real life, we don't have it. But in today's passage, Jesus is going to interact with some people who are hungry, like us, And he's going to show us something better than the food that we're living for, the food we're laboring for. He's going to show us how to get it. And he's even going to challenge us as to why we're following him at all. Because I know for us, uh, many of us would say that the reason I'm exhausted is because I am following Jesus. It seems like I'm doing doing something different now in following Jesus, but I'm just as unsatisfied as I was before. I still have that same angst deep within me, and we wear ourselves out doing what looks like following Jesus, but he's saying to us that he's got something even better than that for us today, even something better than what we're experiencing. And he starts this passage in John chapter 6 with a big miracle. And and the miracles, remember, are, are designed to teach, they're not just magic tricks that are there to impress. They're not just made for us to say, ooh and ah. They're for us to look at what Jesus does and say, that's amazing, and he's an amazing king, and this is what he's like. So he does these miracles to teach something. And in, in this famous miracle, in John chapter 6, verse 1, we kind of see the setup for it, and then we see Jesus meet this huge need. So John 6, 1, it says, After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with the disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? So Jesus is out teaching, and we'll see in a second that they're, they're numbered at 5,000 men. So the men are counted, and if they have their households with them, it's not crazy to assume that there are 20,000 people here out in the wilderness listening to the teaching of Jesus. 
So they're out in the country, and they're hungry. So Jesus turns to Philip. Philip is one of his followers who's a local. He knows the area, knows all the good restaurants in town, and he says to them, Philip, where are we going to go? Buy these people food. And Philip says, these people? There are 20,000 of them. It would cost 200 denarii. It's 200 days wages to feed all of these people. To feed this many people would be totally exhausting. We could never do it. This is an impossible situation. There's nothing we can do to solve the problem that we've now got 20,000 people on our hands with no food. This is, this is a crisis. We can't solve this. So they're faced with hunger, with scarcity, with an inability to meet everybody's needs. And then Peter's brother, Andrew, says, good news. Boy over there with five barley loaves and two fish. And, and these barley loaves, we wouldn't even call them loaves today. They're like the size of dinner rolls. So, so Jesus is saying, what are all these people going to eat? And he says, we got five muffins, and, and that's it. There's nothing. There, there is no hope. There's nothing we can do to solve this problem. They can't provide for 20,000 people. Now they're all out in the field. They've got 5,000 men, and soon they're going to be hangry. So this is, this is rough. This is a bad situation. Verse 10. Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place. So the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. So Jesus does this miracle, and he turns their scarcity into abundance. Everybody eats, and there's more in the leftover bins than there was before they started. And so they say, this guy is the prophet who is to come. Good Jews were on, on the lookout for a prophet to come and restore them to their glory days. Uh, there had been in the past great days where, where Israel was strong. They had prophets who led them, prophets like Elijah and Elisha. Moses was one of their great leaders. They had these glory days in the past, and they read about those glory days in their scriptures, and they were waiting for them to come back. Because right now they were occupied by Rome. They didn't have their freedom. They, they were second-class citizens in their own country, and they wanted the prophet to come and bring back the glory days. So anytime something happened that looked like something those prophets did, they said, this is it. Finally, this is it. You know, this is kind of like uh, Bills fans who are always waiting for our, you know, it's going to be a joke. I say Bills and you laugh. But um, we, we're waiting for our Jim Kelly and Andre Reid to come. Uh, we, anytime, I mean, you can, you can see it where Tyrod has a good day and he connects with Sammy Watkins on some long passes and the commentators are tripping over themselves to say, oh, it's shades of Jim Kelly and Andre Reid. It's just like that. We're waiting for them to come back. We remember those glory days a long time ago. We remember the strengths. We remember that former glory. And when we see something that looks like it, we say, this is it. That's Jim Kelly and Andre Reid. It's that thing we had before. And so now for 11 quarterbacks, we have these moments of hope, albeit brief, where we feel like this is our guy. This is the one. The glory is back. So when they see Jesus do this miracle, they can't help but say, this is the guy. The glory's back because this looks exactly like actually a couple of different miracles that were performed by the prophets in the Old Testament. Uh, the big one that you see them uh, talk about a lot in this passage happened in Exodus 16. So if, if you've got a Bible, if you want to hold your finger in John 6 and go back to Exodus 16, this is doubtless the passage that is in the minds of the people who see Jesus do this miracle. 
And uh, what was going on in Exodus here is God had come to his people in Egypt. They were slaves there. They were in captivity. And so God raises up his servant Moses to lead them out of captivity, to lead them to freedom. And for 40 years, they wander in the wilderness before they enter into the promised land. So in Exodus 16, they're wandering in the wilderness, and out there in the wilderness, they have no food. So they're grumbling, and they're complaining, and they're even saying, it would be better if we went back to Egypt. At least there, there was food. Now we're just going to die out here in the wilderness. What have you done to us? So in Exodus 16, verse 4, it says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them, whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. If you go down to verse 11, it says, And the Lord said to Moses, I've heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them, At twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. And in the evening quail came up and covered the camp, and in the morning dew lay around the camp. And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. When the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, what is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, it's the bread that the Lord your God has given you to eat. And later they called this bread manna, which means, what is it? So people saw this on the ground, they said, what is it? And Moses said, yep. And they called it that for 40 years. And and then verse uh, 6, It says, this is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it, each one of you, as much as he can eat. You shall each take an omer according to the number of the persons that each of you has in his tent. And the people of Israel did so. They gathered, some more, some less. But when they measured it with an omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. And Moses said to them, let no one leave any of it over till the morning. So this was a key moment in the history of the Jews. It was a time where they were in the wilderness and grumbling. They had scarcity. There was no way to feed everybody. But in comes Moses with the answer from God and says, every morning there's going to be manna on the ground six days a week. And six days a week for 40 years when they got up in the morning, this bread was on the ground. They could gather it. They could eat it all day. They couldn't save any overnight except for before the Sabbath. And then they could save two days worth and they could eat what they needed uh, on the Sabbath without having to go out and work and pick any up. But God provided for his people this bread from heaven for years. And so here comes Jesus in the wilderness, a bunch of people, stomachs grumbling. He provides this bread and they say, this is it going back to the Super Bowl. This, this is our guy. This is our prophet. He's the one who is to come. So what Jesus does has huge significance to them when it comes to their history, but it also had huge significance to them when it comes to what this would do for their lives if Jesus kept producing free bread for them. And we don't think too much of it because on average, over the course of our lifetime, we only spend 10% of our income on food in the United States. And that's a really low percentage compared to the rest of the world today. It's a very low percentage compared to most of history. Uh, But in their day, in their land, and today in poorer developing nations, it's not uncommon at all for people to work 80 to 90% of their time for the food that they buy. So it's not like they would get paid and then, you know, some goes in the 401k and some goes in college savings and then some goes in the emergency fund, some goes toward the vacation, and then there's the, the blow fund. Like, they didn't have that. They worked and they ate. That was it. You, you worked, you made money, that money bought enough food for your family to eat for a day, and that was almost all that you had. 
They, they didn't have anything else. So for Jesus to come and be able to make food for free is going to change their lives radically. I mean, imagine if your boss were to come in tomorrow and say, you worked hard last year, I'm going to give you a raise, and it's going to be five to ten times what you made last year. You'd probably all of a sudden be much more loyal to your company. You'd be like, yeah, this is a good job all of a sudden. I, I like it here. It would change everything. To have, for your boss to come in and say, just throw a zero on last year's salary, and that's what you get now, your whole life would change. And here's Jesus producing food that can mean that food is free. So what they worked for 80 to 90% of their time would now be free. Think of what that would do to their lives. And then think of what it'll do when this guy, Jesus, restores the glory days. Think of what it'll be like when the Jews rule and reign again, and we've got a Jesus who can do this stuff. I mean, imagine what we would do if there were someone who had these kind of powers today. If someone said, I have solution, all, all these things that you work for all the time, I have a way to make them free. I can give you free rent and free mortgage and free utilities and free health insurance and free retirement and free groceries, but we're not going to have to raise taxes and we're not going to raise the debt. If someone had the ability to do that, we would say, let's make that guy president. And, and this is why every four years the candidates actually make those promises. Like they say, yeah, everything's free, no debt, no tax, just vote for me. They, because they know, we'll say, they should be president. And so when Jesus comes and he's able to multiply these loaves and feed everybody for free, the first thing they say is, let's make that guy king. Verse 15, perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So they're not only thinking about making Jesus king, it says that they're right about to do it. So there's, there's a lot of tension building that we don't normally think about when we think about this feeding of the 5,000. We think this, that this is just a, a serene meadow picnic scene, and Jesus is just presiding over the picnic, and everybody's having a good time. But there's actually war brewing. In fact, one of the reasons why they only counted the men in this case, why they counted 5,000 men, is they may have been counting the number of people in their standing army. Like, they're saying, we're going to go and we're going to make Jesus king by force if we have to. If he can make bread out of nothing and he can feed all these people, then we can, let's make that guy king. And obviously, he'll empower us, he'll strengthen us, and we're going to get our glory days back. So they think that Jesus is, is some kind of William Wallace-type leader who's going to come and rally the troops and send them into battle. And this isn't crazy for them to think, because Moses at times rallied the troops and sent them into battle. It seems like if the glory days are going to come back, then the war is going to have to come back, the battles will come back, there's going to be uh, some fighting to get us there. But that wasn't at all what Jesus was after. So he withdraws to the mountains to, to take the air out of there, let's go to war balloon. And then uh, in verses 16 to 25, we're going to skip over those today and talk about them next week, but spoiler alert, Jesus walks on water, and some people, <laughs> they come and they, they follow him around the sea. So, so after he does this miracle, it's so impressive, and they so want him to be king, and they so want him to restore those glory days that they're willing to follow him around the sea to be with him and to learn more from him. And that's where we pick up in verse 25. It says, when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. So they have walked around the sea to be with Jesus. They'll do anything to be with him. He's got a huge crowd following him, and it seems to upset Jesus. And that's weird. I mean, as a Christian parent, if my kids were to come to me and say, I just want to follow Jesus with my life. Wherever he goes, I'm going to go. I'm going to follow him. 
I wouldn't be upset. I'd be thrilled. Like, that's the goal for my kids. I mean, of everything else, I don't care what goes wrong in your life if you follow Jesus. Like, if, if, if you don't do great in school, you're not a great athlete, if you love and follow Jesus, that's the number one priority. So why is it that these people follow Jesus, they follow him around the sea, and when they get to him, he says, you're, you're not following me right. Why is he so upset? Well, the reason is because he knows why they're following him. They're not following him for who he is. They're following him for the things that he can do for them. And he's going to say some things in this chapter to them and to us that are offensive to really test their loyalty. And they call him teacher here, but we'll see later in this passage, we'll see it in a couple weeks, that when he teaches them, they don't like his teaching. They call him teacher, but when he teaches, they grumble. And they get mad, and they argue, and they resist it, and they reject it. They're all for this guy who can multiply loaves and make us strong and make our bellies full, but they are not for someone who can challenge us, who can say hard things to us, and who, who can tell us about our deepest need that's hard for us to acknowledge. They are seeking Jesus not as their God, but as a useful helper. They wanted a Jesus who could give them bread, give them health, says they followed him because they saw the signs he was doing on the sick, who could give them power. He was a Jesus who could come and give them a much better life. So they said, okay, we'll seek him. And honestly, our normal response to Jesus looks a lot like their response. We look at the things that Jesus can do for us. We look at, at the ways that he can bring power into our lives, the way that he can give us stuff. And we convince ourselves, if I make Jesus my king, then he'll give me stuff. He'll answer my prayers. He'll make me rich. He'll give me a spouse. He'll heal my disease. He'll do awesome things for me and make me awesome. Jesus can do these amazing things for me, so of course I want Jesus to be my king. Jesus exists to give me material blessings. We think that, and we miss the point just like they did. These people who are following Jesus, they didn't see Jesus as amazing. They saw his gifts as amazing. They didn't see Jesus as a good one to worship. They saw Jesus as a good one to have around to make their lives more full and to give them stuff. And they missed Jesus while they were following Jesus. And if it's possible for them, then it's certainly possible for us. And I think one reason that we can find our Christian lives so exhausting and so unfulfilling is that much of what we're doing in our, our church and Christian lives, we call following Jesus but it's really just a baptized version of everything that we were living for before. Like before, we would live for human approval, and we would do it by trying to do well in school, do well in the workplace, you know, be a great mom, be a great dad, and then, then we found Jesus. And now that we found Jesus, we try to live for human approval in the church by being a good kids' class teacher, or a good elder, a good teacher, a good pastor. By being a good Christian, now we get those same pats on the back we were always living for. We haven't really changed what we're living for at all. We've just baptized it, and it's just as exhausting as it was before. And maybe before we lived for money by being greedy, by stealing, by overworking, and then we hear about Jesus. And maybe someone's told you that if you, you give money, Jesus will give you more money back, which is not necessarily biblical or true. But now in a Christian way, we're still living for the exact same thing. We're, we're giving money hoping to be rich. Our hope isn't in Jesus. Our hope is in his stuff. Our hope is in what he can do for us. Our hope is in the way that he can empower our lives, and we find ourselves still just as exhausted. And, and it's almost like Christianity doesn't work. We hear Jesus saying things like, come to me, my yoke is easy, my burden's light. Come to me, you'll find rest for your souls, and we don't experience it. 
But the reason is because we follow Jesus like they follow Jesus, which is not for Jesus, but for the stuff, for the promises, for, for the things that we think that he'll do for us. And so Jesus says and does some shocking things in this chapter to, to thin the herd, to, to get the people who are following him for the wrong reasons, who, who just want the full bellies to take off. And you'll see by the end of this chapter, the 20,000 is dwindling fast. They start taking off because Jesus says some hard things. He says some hard words. They call him teacher, and he says, okay, let me teach you. And then he teaches some things that are so offensive that most of them say, I'm not that loyal. And in this chapter of these next few weeks, I think he'll do the same thing for us. I think he'll challenge us to, to determine whether we're on team Jesus uh, so that we can continue all the same pursuits that we had before, only call him Christian, or whether we're on team Jesus because of who Jesus is. There is a big distinction, and we would expect in any big crowd that there would be people really in both camps. So Jesus goes on and he warns them, warns them, he warns us, verse 27, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. So Jesus says you're working really hard, but in reality you're working for food that goes bad. You're working for temporary things. You're exhausting yourself to get these things that won't satisfy you. Work real hard for eternal life. So verse 28 says, Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? So they're saying, we'll do it. Uh, eternal bread sounds awesome. This everlasting gobstopper of bread, yeah, like whatever it takes, I will do that thing. We followed you around the sea. We'll climb a mountain. We'll do whatever it takes to do the works of God. You name it, and we will achieve that thing so that we can have this eternal life, so we can have this eternal bread. Verse 29, Jesus answered them, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. He says, if you really want to work for better bread, realize you can't work for it. What you're working for is something that's infinite, so no matter how much you work, you will never attain it. And for us, what we often strive for in our search for peace, in our search for fulfillment and satisfaction, in our, in our search to just get that angst off and get the worry, the anxiety off, what we're looking for is something that's infinite, and no matter how much work we do, it won't be enough. So maybe you're looking at your life and you feel like so much of life is passing you by and there must be more than this and I've got to make some changes. I need to do something to find that soul fulfillment that I'm after and I don't know what that thing is. Be careful. Because maybe you're considering making, making a big move out of town and you're thinking that will do it for us. Another there good reasons to move and that might be a good move. But if you're moving for some deep soul fulfillment, you'll find that a year from now, you're the same old angsty you, only somewhere warmer and with lower taxes. It won't, won't fully do that for you. Um, if you want to start a ministry and start serving in some new ways, that may very well be what God is calling you to do, but don't do it as your bread. Don't do it for ultimate soul-level satisfaction because I promise you it won't cut it for you. And maybe that job change that you're thinking about is long overdue, but you won't have peace from the next one. You can get a better job. There could be good reasons for that and good reasons to thank God when you get it. But it's not going to satisfy. And what we're after isn't something we can work our way to at all. You can't date your way to what you're after. You can't get promoted to what you're after. You can't marry your way to that thing that your soul's after on the deepest level. You can't save your way there. You can't mother your way there. You can't father your way there. You can't do anything 
to receive eternal life and to receive that deep thing your soul's after. All you do is believe. You believe, you trust in Jesus. This eternal bread can't be earned. You get it by faith. The work of God that gives you eternal life is, is to believe in the one that God sent. It's to rest in Jesus. And so maybe you're exhausting yourself out with all of your even Christian-y pursuits. And Jesus says to you, I got better bread. There's something better. Don't try to earn your own peace, your own life, your own satisfaction, your own forgiveness. You can't earn those things. It is by grace you are saved through faith and that not of ourselves. It's a gift of God, not of work so that nobody can boast. Our work can get us a lot of things, but it can't get us the most important things. The best thing in life is free. And Jesus offers us that bread. So Jesus is making this big claim. He's claiming that he gives this eternal, everlasting bread. He says, I can give you something better than Moses gives you. And these people who just saw him take a few muffins and feed 20,000 people with it, listen to what they say. They're still not believing. Verse 30, so they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? Were you there yesterday? Like, what else, what else does it take? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. And as, as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. It's almost like this verse is out of place. Like, this is the verse you would think they would say this stuff before he multiplies the bread and basically does the exact same thing as the manna from heaven. But they say this after he did it. He's already multiplied the bread. He's already given like the manna equivalent. He's already shown that he's got authority, that he is God, that he is powerful. He's proven himself. And now he says, I'm, I'm bringing the bread of life. And they say, prove it. I've got a pretty good resume. Five muffins. Verse 32. Jesus then said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you bread from heaven, but my father gives you true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. So here he's not calling the bread an it. He's calling the bread he. And they aren't hearing him. All they know is they want bread for their bellies. They just want to have their, their physical needs satisfied. So verse 34, they say something that makes no sense after he just says this. It says, they said to him, sir, give us this bread always. They still don't get what he's saying. And so there's kind of this pattern emerging in the life of Jesus. We saw it a few weeks ago. He sat down with the woman at the well, and he says, hey, I've got this everlasting water that you can drink and you'll never thirst again. And she says, oh, give me that water because I don't want to come to this well and work anymore. And he says, no, it's, it's actually something different. I'm, I'm the one who's the rivers of water for you. And here he says to these people, I can give you this everlasting bread so you never have to hunger again. And they say, oh, give it to us. Yeah, we don't want to eat bread anymore. And now in verse 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So he says, I'm not coming to give you bread. I'm coming to be the bread. Now, we don't catch the weight of this because bread is just a really small part of our diet. For these people, bread was almost the entire diet. They'd have a little bit of meat, a little bit of dairy. There are a couple little treats along the way, but they would have bread at breakfast, bread at lunch, bread at dinner, days and days where it was nothing but bread, similar to parts of the world today where, where you just know they're going to have rice at every meal. Here they had bread at every meal. They knew nothing of variety. They didn't have Wegmans like where they would walk in. If they had walked into a Wegmans, they would think they had died and gone to heaven. And, and I think we think that half the time too still, like it's, <laughs> until we get in the parking lot and then certainly not heaven. But it's... Uh, 
they didn't know variety. So when Jesus comes and he says, I am the bread of life, he is saying, I'm your staple. He's saying, I am your food. I'm what sustains your life. He's saying, I'm everything to you. I'm your food. I'm what you need to live. In fact, when Jesus taught us to pray for for the things that we want and the things that we need, he said, pray this way, give us this day our daily bread. The bread is the the sustenance. It's like the, the, the essential that gives us life. So he says, the bread that I give you is not wealth. The bread that I give you isn't power. The bread that I give you is not that I'll heal your disease. The bread that I offer is something that will will hit you at a deeper level. It'll satisfy your soul. And he says, I come to give myself. He says, I've come to be all that you need. I've come to feed you. And more than that, he says, I've come to to be your food. So how how do we eat this bread? Verse 47. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. So in verse 47, he says, if you believe you have eternal life. Verse 51, he says, if you eat, you have eternal life. So the way that we feed on the bread of life is to believe in Jesus. And the work that gets that bread into us is belief. It's really not work. It's just belief. To believe is to eat. He's calling us to believe in him. But he's not just saying that he wants us to believe in him. He's not just saying that what we need at the deepest level is a personal relationship with him. Now, he is saying that. Our deepest need is for a personal relationship with Christ. Our deepest need is to have that friendship with Christ and that communion with Christ. But he's saying more than that. He doesn't just say, your deepest need is relationship with me. He says, my flesh is the bread. He says, you need to eat my flesh. It's one thing to say, you should be my friend. It's another thing to say, you should eat my body. I mean, if if you have a children's doll that you got for Christmas and you pull the string and it says, let's be friends, you say, that's cute. But if you pull that string and it says, eat my flesh, I mean, you're sending it back to Amazon. Like, take take it back, Jeff Bezos. I don't want, like, that's creepy. That's, and and so Jesus, it'd be one thing if he said, man, a friendship with me is all you need. But he comes and he says, my flesh is what you need. You need to feast on me. You need to, and he says this, and it's offensive, it's appalling, it sounds gross, and it's a test. Do we trust the words of Jesus, or do we trust ourselves when those words of Jesus are appalling to us? Because if he's God, we wrestle to trust in his word. If we're God, we decide if what he says was okay. So that's the test he puts in front of these people. And so immediately, verse 52, the, the Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? And so you'd think Jesus would come over and say, hey, guys, I was speaking figuratively. You know, take the edge off the whole thing. Don't get mad. You know, you missed the illustration. But he actually pushes it up a notch. In verse 53, it says, so Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Now it's over the top. And he says, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. 
For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. So now they are appalled. A couple minutes ago, he was rabbi, and now he is psychotic. You, you don't say things like this. And so a lot of them start bailing out right away. I mean, these guys, I mean, this is Jews hearing this. These guys had food laws that God had given, I mean, to Noah. God told Noah, and really through him, all of mankind, don't drink blood. If you're going to eat meat, drain it. Blood is not for consumption. The life of the flesh is in the blood, so it's not something that you should ever eat. It was not kosher. It was not good. It was disgusting. And here comes Jesus saying, you need to drink my blood? What? That's psychotic. That's crazy. We're cool with Jesus making miracle bread and making us powerful. But Jesus who says offensive things? I don't know. Verse 57. He says, As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread, he says, pointing to himself, will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. So Jesus gets up in church and advocates cannibalism. <laughs> and these people who are saying we are all, in, all into Jesus are all of a sudden going, oh, I, I don't know if I can be into Jesus. And he, he's saying some shocking things here, and he's definitely saying shocking things to thin the herd. Do you really trust me? Do you really believe me? Do you really think I'm your teacher? Do you take me at my word, or do you, do you just want my miracles? There's a big test going on, but he's also teaching something really important. Now, some people historically have looked at this passage and said that Jesus is talking about communion. He's talking about the Lord's Supper, that the way that we get eternal life is by eating his flesh and drinking his blood, and that's what the Lord's Supper is. So, so the way that we have eternal life imparted to us is by taking communion. That's what a lot of people have, have said historically. But we can't take this passage to be directly about the Lord's Supper. And the reason is because Jesus equates eating his flesh and drinking his blood not with taking the Lord's Supper, but with believing. In verse 47, Jesus said, whoever believes has eternal life. In verse 54, he says, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. So, so this feeding on his flesh and drinking his blood is believing. It's not taking the Lord's Supper. But the Lord's Supper is talking all about this passage. So this passage isn't talking about the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is talking about this passage. When we take the bread, we are saying that the flesh of Jesus was torn for us, and that is our food, that's our life. We're taking that bread into our bodies to symbolically say that we've taken Jesus into our being and that he's the one that our souls feed on. When we drink the cup, we're saying that it's only the blood of Jesus that allows us to approach God, which is the deep thing that our souls wanted all along. The relationship with God isn't something that we can earn. It's not something we can work for. It's not something we can exhaust ourselves for and cross the sea for. There's nothing we can do to earn that thing our souls need the most. And so in taking the Lord's Supper, we're saying Jesus already earned it. Jesus' body was torn for us. His blood was spilled for us. And when we believe in him, we are spiritually eating his flesh and drinking his blood. And when we take this supper, we are saying we are the people who have eaten his flesh and drank his blood, and we approach God because of what he did for us. 
So Jesus is teaching that, that the reason we don't have that deep soul satisfaction is because we're working really hard instead of trusting. Instead of believing, instead of believing in Jesus and who he is and what he did. And when we take the supper together, we're celebrating together the fact that we're able to approach God because Jesus really is our food. Another reason this is shocking for these people is because they really wanted him to be king, and a king can't also be food. Because food dies. In fact, everything that we eat, almost everything, has died. Today, you're going to go home for lunch, and you're going to eat maybe a chicken that died for you, or if it's a good day, a cow that died for you, or maybe a little bit of pig that died for you, or maybe you're putting them all together because it's the playoffs. Um, you're, you're, like, you're going to eat something that died, and even if that's not you, you're going to go and eat some lettuce that someone decapitated for you, and, and that thing was living, and now it's not living. Our food has died. It's something that died so that we could have life. And you say, well, not eggs. Mm, those are those are dead liquid chickens. And so, like they are. They, we, we're eating things that died for us. And so when Jesus comes and they say, we want to make you king, and he says, I'm food. What? Kings can't be food because food dies. And Jesus is saying, I'm a different kind of king. He is the kind of king who dies. He's the kind of king who would come and give his life so that we could have everlasting life. He's the king who would come and give us peace with God through his death. And the war that was going to happen wasn't going to be 5,000 guys with their swords and their bellies full of bread. The war that was going to happen was Jesus was going to go to war against Satan, sin, and death on the cross. He was going to give his life, spill his blood, die, be buried, and rise again so that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. He was going to come to give us that deep peace that we're after, peace with God eternal life where our sins are forgiven. He was coming to give us what we all desperately, desperately need. So a question for all of us is, is Jesus our food? Is Jesus what we're living for and satisfied in? Not his gifts, not his blessings, not those secondary things that we're glad that he's given us, but is Jesus the one in our lives that's glorious and important and that we've anchored our souls to or have we anchored our souls to something as fleeting as his gifts and his material blessings? He's not interested in a really big crowd of followers who just want the stuff that he can hand out. He wants followers who see his glory, who know who he is, and, and regardless of what he gives, and regardless of those secondary blessings, he's the blessing, he's the meat, he's the food, he's the one who satisfies our souls. And if we still feel that angst, we still feel that discontent, a question for all of us is, what's my food that I'm living for? What am I exhausting myself to attain? Even the Christian-looking things that I'm exhausting myself to attain, Jesus' yoke is easy and his burden is light. And when we come to him, we do find rest for our souls. Let's pray. Jesus, we come and we're bringing our anxiety and our worries and and all of our unfulfilled longings, Lord, all of those are evidence that on a soul level, we're just not feasting on you and what you've done. So Lord, we confess that, and we ask that you would help us to stop, to stop working for, 
for something that we could never buy, to, to stop working for eternal life, to stop working for a relationship with God, to stop working for peace and joy, and to find that peace and that joy and that life by resting. By resting in you, by resting in your finished work on the cross, and by knowing that your body was torn for us and your blood was spilled for us. Lord, our, our heart's longing is for you. So help us to see you, help us to be satisfied with you, help our souls to, to feed on you and find that fullness that we're after and that can only be found in the infinite one, only be found in you. Now, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, the good news of Christianity is not that um, we can give you some rituals and you follow those rituals and that makes you a Christian. It's not that here's 15 works that you can do. Do good things, go, go to church, put money in your offering, take communion, do these things, and then maybe God will accept you. That's not the good news of Christianity. The good news of Christianity is that Jesus came and he died for you. The thing that you couldn't work for, he did for you. The death that you should have died, the punishment that you should have absorbed, he absorbed for you on the cross. He was buried and he rose again so that whoever believes in him, not whoever works, not whoever becomes religious, but whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. So to come to Jesus, admit your sin and your brokenness and your unbelief, Admit that you've fallen, and then believe. Believe that he died on the cross to take the punishment for you. Believe he, his flesh was torn for you. Believe his blood was spilled for you. Trust in him. Stop trusting in your good works. Stop trusting in your religion. Turn from everything you were living for before and turn to Christ and find your hope and your peace in him. Cry out to him, and he promises whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And he promises if you'll turn from sin and unbelief and whatever was driving you and you'll turn to him and find him to be your food that he will forgive you, he will cleanse you, he'll give you the eternal life that your soul is after. Now in a minute here, we'll be taking the Lord's Supper. And again, we're taking the supper to say that Jesus is our food. We're, we're drinking the cup to say that his blood is the way that we can approach God. So this is a supper for Christians. If you're someone who doesn't yet believe, we would encourage you while we're taking the supper to stay in your seat. But for Christians, what we're supposed to be doing as we're, we're singing these songs and preparing to take the supper is confessing our sin, confessing that we've fallen short, confessing the ways that we have exhausted ourselves and worked our fingers to the bone to get something that, that we can't get by our own good works. But then we need to be reminded again that Jesus is our food and that his blood is the reason we can approach God. So after you've confessed those sins and confessed kind of those, those longings that you've misdirected, you can come and take the supper to celebrate the fact that Jesus is the one that you're after. To celebrate the fact that you can approach God not because of your work, but because of his work. Not because of your effort and your blood, sweat, and tears, but because of his effort and his blood, sweat, and tears. And you can take this communion boldly celebrating the good news that you are right with God because of what Jesus did. So we're taking this together as a joyful feast of humble, penitent, broken people who recognize that we are God's kids because of what Jesus did, and he's all we need. So anytime during the next couple songs, be confessing sin as we're singing, um, and whenever you'd like, there are tables in the front, table in the back, and tables up in the balcony. Uh, you can take the bread, and we show the Lord's death till he comes by eating it. You can drink the cup, and we're reminded of his blood spilled when we drink it. And all of this is to remind ourselves again and again of what our food is, and that's the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. So let's all stand and worship, and you can take the supper whenever you like.